Hello, and welcome to the Strange Cast. We're here to take a deep dive into the unexplained, unsettling, and undertold stories of the world. Today's mystery is of the Toynbee Tiles. Imagine wandering home from the grocery store on a chilly fall day in your hometown. Everything is familiar to you. The crunch of a leaf under your foot, the way your favorite hoodie feels, the weight of your grocery bag filled with your favorite Saturday evening snacks. Maybe they're the same as mine, a pack of Swedish fish and a diet Pepsi. You cross the same street you always have. Smile at the same dog that's always barking at you in that one yard. You tread up to the same road you've always walked down, black asphalt with some litter near the curb. This day though, this day, you look an extra second at the road. This day, you notice the patch of color you've always walked past. It isn't spray paint or crosswalk inlay. It's a message. You step closer, right out into the middle of the quiet street. It's tile, just like you'd see in your grandmother's bathroom. It's red and white with bits of blue and yellow and it says to you, Toynbee Idea, in Kubrick's 2001, Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. What the fuck? I don't know if your hometown is Philadelphia, or Boston, or Kansas City, or even Santiago, the capital of Chile. But these are the places you could run across one of these tiles. Just to give you a mental image, the tiles are embedded in the asphalt of roads, out in the middle, sometimes even in the middle of highways, busy highways. They say exactly what I mentioned, and sometimes a little bit more. You'll hear these four lines over and over again in our episode. But they're the key to unraveling the mystery. Here they are again. Toynbee Idea In Kubrick's 2001 Resurrect Dead On Planet Jupiter What does that mean? It can't be nonsense. A real person intentionally put those words together, carved them into being, and installed them permanently in the middle of roads all over the world. The tiles were first seen in the mid-1980s, and the last authentic tiles are believed to have been laid in the mid-2000s. What we're talking about here are mosaic tiles made of linoleum and asphalt usually designed in primary colors, 
with white and black making up the background and text. Sometimes, interesting design elements were added, including a few which were framed by sexually suggestive women's legs. Often, subtexts were added, usually a call to action for the viewer. You must make in glue tiles. You, with the and stylized as a plus sign. Another reads, I am only one man, and when I caught a fatal disease, they gloated over its death. We know from this tile, this is a person, a real person, telling us their most important message. Can you imagine having such a burning desire to share something with the world that you literally carve your message into pavement for all to see? The Toynbee Tyler did. They needed us to know. They needed us to act. But why? Another tile, the manifesto tile, could be the key to unraveling the motive behind the author's drive. The manifesto tile is much bigger than the others, spanning about three feet. It was located in Philadelphia on 16th and Chestnut, but research indicates it may have been paved over in 1998. Some of it is impossible to read from the picture, which will be included in the show notes, but there are so many clues in what we are able to read. It alleges that John Knight, the owner of the Philadelphia Inquirer, personally hates the Tyler's movement. It goes even further, accusing Knight of taking money from the Mafia, and even organizing a Mafia hit on the Tyler. As part of the Hellion cult, the Tyler writes, Knight got, and I quote, Union goons from their own employees' union to send down a sports journalist who, with a baseball bat, bashed in lights and windows of neighborhood cars, as well as men outside my house. They are stationed there still, waiting for me. So who is the Toynbee Tyler? Why do they believe the Philadelphia Inquirer is out to shut them up? What is their Toynbee idea supposed to mean? In the mid-90s, Justin Dwyer asked himself the same question. You can't tell the story of the Toynbee tiles without Justin Dwyer. He's the main investigator behind everything, but he wasn't always. Back in the mid-90s, Justin was an artist living in Philly, near South Street. Just as in our intro, one day he noticed something that didn't belong. In the middle of the street, this tile with an odd message. It sparked a decades-long investigation, and one of the most compelling modern mysteries I personally know of. In researching this episode, I rewatched Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles, a 2011 documentary by John Foy. In this film, 
Justin and his investigative cohorts, Steve Wynick and Colin Smith, lay out everything they knew about the Tyler. Another key resource is ToynbeeIdea.com, run by Steve, the principal photographer in the film. On this website, you can view photos of the tiles themselves, along with the information collected by Justin and his team on the who, what, where, when, and why of the mystery. Their timeline starts with an explanation of the first line, Supporting documents that were discovered further along in the investigation let us know that the titular Toynbee idea came from British historian Arnold J. Toynbee's autobiography, Experiences. Toynbee was born in 1889, and in his lifetime, became a prominent historian who championed theories on challenge response. His writings largely revolved around the idea that how humanity responded to the challenges they encountered would determine the rise and fall of civilizations. He said, Civilizations die from suicide, not murder. His rise to prominence was not meek. He worked in the intelligence department of the British Foreign Office during World War I, and was at one point even invited personally by Adolf Hitler to meet on international affairs. Make of that what you will, of course. How is he regarded in modern times? From a 2011 entry in the Journal of World History, author Michael Lang writes, To many world historians today, Arnold J. Toynbee is regarded like an embarrassing uncle at a house party. He gets a requisite introduction by virtue of his place on the family tree, but he is quickly passed over for other friends and relatives. Why was Toynbee discarded as such after his years of global influence? Ultimately, most historians agree his ideas were too staunchly based in Christian fundamentalism, myths, and legends to be considered accurate history. This is echoed in the passage from experiences that we believe the Tyler got their inspiration from, which I'll share a portion of with you now. But the physical materials of which the dissolved human body was composed at the moment of death have not been destroyed through ceasing to be incorporated temporarily in an organic physical structure. They are continuing to exist as parts of the physical universe. There's our first line, the Toynbee idea. When we die, the elements that make up our mass don't disappear, but remain, waiting to be put together like a jigsaw puzzle. This is what our Tyler wants us to know. We need to resurrect the dead. All the dead. But why? Well, most of this remains a mystery. But some things we do know are that the Tyler thinks this is related to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. In the film, to greatly sum up 
what could easily be an entire episode of a completely different podcast. A team of astronauts are sent to investigate a radio signal sent from a lunar artifact to Jupiter. To avoid ruining the film, I won't delve further, but what I will do is assure you both the lines regarding the exact influence of 2001 A Space Odyssey and the location of Jupiter remain mysteries. There is no clear and direct link from the film to the location. We do, however, have a clear and direct link the idea of resurrection. This feels like the right time to bring up David Mamet. Mamet, writer of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Glengarry Glen Ross, wrote a lesser-known play called 4AM. In the play, a caller dials a radio host to publicize their organization. An organization who believes that 2001, A Space Odyssey, was based on Toynbee's writings rather than Arthur C. Clarke's, and that Toynbee calls humanity to bombard Jupiter's atmosphere with oxygen and reclaim the soil to unite the molecules of human life and resurrect the dead. Now, Mamet says 4AM was inspired by Larry King. Many others, however, allege it was more than inspired. In February of 1980, there were numerous calls made in to the Larry King Show about the Toynbee idea. Researchers believe, of course, these calls were made by the Toynbee Tyler. These calls frequented Larry King's radio show from 1980 to 1983. Mamet for his part, wrote 4 a.m. in 1983. Is Mamet the Tyler? It's within the realm of possibility, but not likely. Do you have a mental image of a prestigious playwright laying asphalt in the middle of the night in 1992, the same year Glengarry Glen Ross was nominated for a Golden Globe? Personally, I don't hold too much weight in that theory. Following the vein of the Larry King caller, however, we can find other early ways that Tyler tried to publicize their ideas. In 1983, a man called Clark de Leon of the Philadelphia Inquirer, giving their name as James Morosco. Morosco claimed to be a social worker in Philly and shared the Toynbee idea with De Leon, and his organization to propagate it, called the Minority Association. Morasco's goal is the same as the caller from Mamet's play, to publicize their organization and gain support. The same bullet points. Toynbee, 2001, Jupiter, and Molecules. Specifically, the word molecules. Remember, Toynbee's work references only dissolved materials. The only other place the word molecules is specifically used is 4 a.m., inspired by the Larry King caller.
We can surmise from this that the caller used the word molecules over the radio, and then again with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Who, then, is James Morosco? Well, there's one other lead. An address. Circling back to Justin and his investigation, a tile is reported in Santiago, Chile. It has an address on it for a simple row home in Philly on 7th Street, green with a white fence around the stoop. He goes with his crew and a stack of flyers to pass out in the neighborhood. During their time canvassing the area, on the streets they notice prototiles, little clusters of linoleum embedded in the pavement, testing lettering and different materials. They knew they were close. In asking the neighbors, they're told there's no James Morosco at the address. There is, however, a Severino Verna, or Sevi, a recluse who only leaves in the middle of the night to get groceries, reported by neighbors to be very quiet but extremely intelligent. He's an older gentleman who kept birds. Justin recruits a neighbor to go to the door along with them, to vouch for them, so to speak. They knock. They call out to Sevi, but there's no answer. It's known in the neighborhood that Sevi only talks to those he's familiar with. A different neighbor recalls a time that some drunk men broke into the home, angry with Verna for playing the accordion too loudly, and held a knife to his throat. From the manifesto tile, John Knight sent the mafia to murder me in May 1991. The house is boarded up. Every window shuttered to the world. The door has a long screw through it, probably sticking out two to three inches, and secured with two padlocks. Again, from the manifesto tile. I secured the house with blast doors and flew the country in June 1991. Sevi's mother reports he has a lung condition that would prevent him from traveling across the country, let alone to South America. From another tile. I am only one man, and when I caught a fatal disease, they gloated over its death. His car is old and strange, with no passenger side seat. The floorboard is even missing. It had a weird, giant antenna on top. Later on in the investigation, neighborhood resident Joe Raimondo tells a story of a pirate radio broadcast that interrupted the Channel 3 News at 11 o'clock in 1985. A staticky explanation of the Toynbee idea, again referencing Clark's 2001. He called Channel 3 and asked what was going on. The operator told him he wasn't alone. Lots of people were calling with the same question. Justin Dwyer knew from emails sent to the now-defunct Toynbee.net 
that a Nathan Mel had seen wheat-pasted flyers with the Toynbee idea and a pirate shortwave radio station around the city in the early 1980s. Was this the Tyler? Driving around in a car with a giant antenna, hijacking the airwaves to spread his message? Dropping a tile from his moving car through a floor in the passenger side floorboard onto the pavement below? Letting the cars that followed mash the patch of asphalt and tile into the road? Justin was close, but a theory isn't evidence. The investigative team needed something to tie a name to any of their concrete clues. In 2006, they attended a shortwave radio convention, trying to locate any longtime radio hobbyists who might have remembered anything relating to the Toynbee idea. They found one man, John T. Arthur. Arthur remembered the broadcasts and the name the Minority Association. The Tyler had reached out to him asking to use his post office box as a mail drop in the early 80s. The early 80s, when Larry King received the radio calls, and when DeLeon received notice of the Minority Association. When wheat-pasted flyers were being hung across the city, and when pirate radio was interrupting the 11 o'clock news. I wish I had the audio to insert here of this conversation. And I urge you, if for no other reason than this, to rent or purchase the 2011 film Resurrect Dead. Because here is the mic drop. In a noisy conference room, with fluorescent lights and yellow walls, lined with emerald green conference room tables, we see John T. Arthur, Justin Dwyer, and Colin Smith. Justin says, Do you remember any of the names of the people that contacted you? Arthur pauses. If you could rattle off some names, it might jog my memory. Colin says, Severino? Sevi? And then instantly... Arthur says, Verna? Colin nods, Verna. Arthur smiles, yeah, how about that? First try. Here we are in 2019 with a what, a where, a who, and no why. Justin tried several times to speak with Sevi, and ultimately appreciated the situation for what it was. He was knocking on the twice-padlocked door of a boarded-up house with a man inside who clearly didn't want to speak of the world in any way other than his own, through license plate-sized linoleum and pirate radio and minority association documents signed by James Marasco, and on one occasion, Severino Verna. From the minority association documents. Between January and June 1979, by a complete accident, I discovered a piece of writing 
by the historian Arnold Toynbee in a library book, where Toynbee explained of his belief in the ability of a science to bring every dead molecule of every dead human being of past history back to life again through scientific means. Is the mystery of the Toynbee Tyler solved? Maybe. We'll never know how Seve would have been able to travel the country with his reclusive reputation and serious lung condition. We'll never know how he managed to hire South America as well. We don't have a lot of answers regarding what the exact message means or how the idea was formed that Toynbee wanted to resurrect the Earth's dead on Jupiter or why Seve formed the minority of association to propagate his idea. We don't have any admission of responsibility by Seve. And that's okay. The Tyler's message is clear, it's everywhere, and it carries on today. Here I am talking about it, and here you are listening to it. I want to close by reading another tile, the one laid on the corner of Cotman and Toursdale in Philadelphia. Take it for what you will, but this is the Tyler's message. Toynbee Idea, Movie 2001, Resurrect Dead, Planet Jupiter. I'm only one man when I got a fatal disease. You must make tile. You. You. As hellions and feds infiltrate and harvest you to prison. Thank you. And goodbye. This podcast was made using Anchor, a free podcast recording, editing, and posting app. I'm an idiot when it comes to sound design, and there's no way I could have made this podcast without their help. The Strange Cast is written, read, and designed by Andrea Sandvig. You can follow the show at StrangeCastPod on Twitter and email thoughts, corrections, listener stories, and show ideas to strangecastpod at gmail.com. We're a new podcast, so we'd really appreciate if you'd support us by writing a review or sharing an episode with a friend. Thank you, and stay strange. Strange.